Good morning. Today's scripture is from 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Along with my brothers and sisters, Lord, I choose as your minister to place myself and my thoughts and my words under the authority of your word. And I pray that whatever distractions, whatever cares, whatever concerns might now seek with the aid of the evil one to sabotage our attention, that your Holy Spirit would intervene that we might be a people who submit ourselves to the functional authority of your word in every area of life for the simple reason that it has been inspired by you. Do that in this church, not just today, but for every day you call us here until you call us home. Amen. Friends, we we live in a time when authority of every sort is increasingly suspect. Radical individualism is the song of the hour. And from the Billboard Top 40 to the latest Disney movie, we are encouraged to question authority, to resist authority, and to assert our independence. We are told hour after hour, don't get in line, be yourself. Don't get in line. Be yourself. I think it's worth noting that the problem is not so much a problem with authority as it is with the presence or legitimacy of any authority outside me. In case you didn't know, debate about the nature of authority and who gets to wield it didn't start in the 60s. All right, it may, it may have taken a more, a more individualistic turn, at least in America, but, but the underlying issue of authority has a, a much longer history, including the history of the church. And in fact, it was a debate over the nature of authority that sparked a 16th century movement in the church known as the Protestant Reformation. 
So just to give you a little bit of background on this, in the, in the early 1500s, there was really only one church in Western Europe, the Catholic Church, ruled by the Holy See in Rome, at the head of which stood the Pope. And in 1515, Pope Leo X issued a plenary indulgence, follow me here, to help pay for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica. So Leo said that in exchange for a small financial gift, that the Catholic faithful could receive a remission of sin for deceased friends and family members that would enable them to leave the suffering of purgatory in exchange for the joys of heaven. So hence, hence the slogan that was used at the time to advertise this, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And, and Leo's plenary indulgence really troubled a, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther. Really bothered the guy. But his underlying concern had nothing to do with financial shenanigans, of which there were many. It really had everything to do with the issue of authority. The issue of authority. See, Rome taught that the traditions and decrees of the church, the words and decisions of men, were of equal inerrant authority to the word of God. They didn't deny the inerrancy or authority of the word. They simply said that there was a parallel, equal authority. And Luther disagreed. He had come to believe that while the traditions of the church have authority, their authority is neither inerrant nor ultimate, scripture is. And so in October of 1517, as some of you are well familiar, he published 95 theses inviting debate on this issue. And Rome, suffice to say, took notice. <laughs> and as a result, in 1518, Martin Luther found himself debating a Catholic theologian named Johannes von Eck in Leipzig. And when Eck appealed to the authority of the Pope and the church councils, Luther replied with these words. Listen to this. As for the Pope's decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. For the sake of Scripture, we should reject Pope and councils. At that time, that's one of those moments where I don't know you. <laughs> those were fighting words. Very much so. And for the next three years, Luther published a, just a torrent of books and sermons, all reflecting his conviction that the church only had authority to the degree she submitted herself to the authority of the word of God. And he was summoned in 1521 to the Diet of Worms, where he was presented with a pile of his works, all these books, writings, and ordered to recant to which he replied with these now famous words, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by clear reason, if 
For I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything. Since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. That took guts. <laughs> but Luther was right. He was right. And his refusal to acknowledge the authority of the church as either alongside or over and above the authority of the word earned him a place in Reformation history as one of the first proponents of what we today call sola scriptura, which is simply a Latin phrase meaning scripture alone. Here's a word to the wise as we work through these solas this month. If you don't know any Latin, you're going to at least know a little bit of Latin by January 1st. All right, so all of you young people, your parents have been on you like, you got to learn a foreign language. You can thank me by the end of this month, you're going to know Latin. All right, so don't be frightened by it. It simply means sola scriptura, scripture alone. But sola scriptura isn't just a reformation principle, church. It's a biblical principle. And perhaps nowhere in scripture is this doctrine of scripture alone more clear than in Paul's letter to Timothy. Particularly 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 17. If you're not familiar with this letter, Paul wrote it while he was in prison in Rome. He was on trial before the Roman emperor on account of preaching the gospel. And he sensed that his death was imminent. And so, so he penned 2 Timothy as basically his parting words, his final address to his young protege, Timothy. And, and in chapter 3, if you look at the beginning of verse 1, to set the context here, Paul warns Timothy what will happen in the last days. The last days, the time between Christ's ascension and his return to earth. Paul tells Timothy, listen, pal, difficulty is going to come your way. In the form of increasing ungodliness and the rise of false teachers who are going to attempt to gain a following among those who are vulnerable to their deception. Now look at verse 7. How does Paul describe those who are deceived and their teachers? They are, verse 7, always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Does that sound familiar? That's the postmodern worldview, like 2,000 years before its time. Always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. There's nothing new under the sun. And in verse 8, Paul characterizes these false teachers as those who oppose the truth, are corrupted in mind, and disqualified regarding the faith. They're not real Christians. But in verse 10, Paul, as it were, looks right at Timothy and says, but Timothy, you're different. 
You're different, Timothy. You haven't followed false teachers. You've followed my teaching. You've, you've embraced sound doctrine and the kind of life that accords with sound doctrine. Your, your life is marked by faith and patience and love and, and steadfastness. You've believed the truth, Timothy. You've loved the truth and you're living the truth. So don't be surprised if you get persecuted as a result. You need to know, Timothy, that long after I'm gone, deception and evil, look at verse 13, are going to progress from bad to worse. But Timothy, you're different. Verse 14, you must remain, you must continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And then Paul does something, church. He knows Timothy needs strengthened for the hard times ahead. And so he gives Timothy instruction, a powerful declaration about the sacred writings. The sacred writings, the holy scriptures which served as the foundation of Timothy's learning and the content of his belief from the earliest days of his life. In the faces of all this pressure, all this trouble, it's all coming Timothy's way. It's not exactly encouraging parting words in that sense. But where does Paul go to fortify his protege? The doctrine of Scripture. Look at verse 16. Listen to these words. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. Friends, I think Paul intended that declaration to give Timothy a backbone of steel. In the face of tremendous cultural pressure to exchange the objective authority of the word of God for the subjective authority of the individual. And I would argue that's not done in the first century. That's still happening today. And furthermore, it is all too easy for that to happen in our hearts too. And Paul knows that what would set Timothy apart from the false teachers in the first century is the same thing that will set a genuine Christian apart from the world today. And it really comes down to this, an issue of authority. In many ways, this message is very simple. That The message of these words is very simple. And it culminates in this question, which I will give you at the beginning of this sermon. Is the word of God the final authority in your life? Is the word of the living God the final authority in your life? Because the message of these verses, friends, is this. As the inspired word of God himself, scripture must function as our final authority in every area of life. Okay? 
Very simple. As the inspired word of God himself, scripture must function as our final authority in every area of your life. And to reinforce that point, Paul draws attention to at least four characteristics of scripture in these verses that will form my four points this morning. We will spend more time on some than others, but buckle your seatbelts because this is loaded. Point number one. The word of God, all these are statements about the word. The word of God is inspired. It's inspired. I want you to think about everything you have breathed out thus far today. And everything you may happen to breathe out the rest of this day. Not a risk of humiliating any of you, but I'll list a couple possibilities. I hope all of us right now are breathing out carbon dioxide. I hope none of us right now are breathing out cold viruses, though I fear some may be. Uh, if you're like me and you do yard work and working with leaves this time of year, maybe you're breathing out leaf particles. You know what God breathes out? He breathes out scripture. Think about that. The defining characteristic of the word of God is that it has been inspired or, or breathed out, perhaps better said, expired, by God. And the words that God breathes out, the, the words of scripture, are, are not just cold, hard facts about what's true, okay? They're an intensely personal expression of God's glory. Psalm 138 verse 4. Look at this very carefully. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for... They have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the world. Okay, leave that scripture up. Because we need to look at this very carefully. Okay, Why are the kings of the earth able to give thanks to the Lord and sing of the greatness of his glory? Why? Because they have heard the words of his mouth. And it's the words of his mouth that reveal the greatness of his glory. In other words, this isn't a fact book, Kingsway. This is a glory book. It reflects the very glory of God himself. But that raises an important question. For we know it was written by men. So how do we know that if the words of scripture were written by men like you and me, which we do, how do we know that when we're reading scripture, we're reading God's revelation of his glory and not just another person's experience or perspective on God's glory? There's a big difference between those things. The former is worthy of your absolute trust and the latter is not. So how's that work? How is this both inspired by God and written by man? 2 Peter 1 verse 20. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Praise God for that. Oh, there's comfort in those words. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke 
from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So listen carefully here. We're we're the human authors of the Bible, thinking hard, writing carefully, and expressing unique elements of their style and their personality and their language in the words they wrote. That was a little weak. Yes, they were. (laughs) They were. However, the Holy Spirit so superintended their activity that they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. And that's what Paul means when he says that all scripture is God breathed. God speaks through the human authors of the Bible in such a way that what the Bible says, God says. The Bible's inspired. And that means that behind the great diversity of human authors stands the essential unity of the divine author. Let me give you an example of this. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 5. This is one of those sermons where because it is focused on the word of God in a particular way, I want you to pay very careful attention when things are projected behind me. So focus on this. The Jewish Pharisees asked Jesus a question about divorce. To which he replies this. Look at these words. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You know what's amazing about that? Check this out. The Old Testament verse Jesus quotes there, Genesis 2.24, If you go back to Genesis, it isn't spoken by God. It's spoken by the narrator, the author of the book. But what does Jesus say? He says that the one who created them, who's that? God. God created them. The one who created them is the one who what? Said. What did he say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's equating the words of the human author of Genesis with who? God. God himself. That's that's remarkable. Jesus is affirming the God-breathed nature of the scriptures. When I was a freshman, at the University of Richmond, I had to take an English class where we had to read the entire book of Genesis. And I will never forget a, a comment that our professor made in the course of one of our class conversations. Uh, she basically said, we are not going to discuss this book, class, as a spiritual or religious text. We are strictly going to discuss this book, and I will make sure we do this, as literature. And I didn't say anything out of respect for her, but I thought to myself, man, with all due respect, I cannot do that. Why not? Because to pretend that this is merely a human work of literature is to pretend that the Bible is not something that it explicitly claims to be. What's that? 
the inspired word of God himself. What she was calling me to do was not a responsible reading of the text. It was doing violence to the text and twisting it into something it is not. Now, why does that matter? You're obviously worked up about this, Matthew. Why does that matter? Why why does it matter such that what the scripture says, God says? Well, it matters, church, because the doctrine of inspiration is the foundation for every other characteristic of the word of God. Chief among them, the truthfulness of the word. If the Bible is not inspired, then you know what it's not? It's not reliably true and inerrant. But if the Bible is inspired, if it is breathed out by God, then you know what it is? It's all true. It's all true. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God is a God of truth. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man. Talk about a put down. God is not a man that he should lie. Therefore, what can we conclude about the words that God breathes out? Isaiah 45, 19. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. In other words, the fact that scripture is all breathed out by God assures us that all scripture is true. Because God only speaks, God only breathes out what is true. And notice Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. You know how many people go creating exceptions to that? You hear things like, well, it's just the big ideas. Friends, it's the very words themselves. Matthew 5.18 For truly I say to you, Jesus speaking, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. It's a Hebrew letter. Not a dot. will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's not just the big ideas that are true. It's it's the very words that are true. And, And nor is it just true when the Bible speaks about matters of faith. Maybe you've heard that one before. It's true in everything it says, including historical descriptions. Why do I say that? Because God reveals himself through the record of his actions, no less than he reveals himself through the record of his speech. And indeed, it is his actions that interpret his words. And his words that interpret his actions. And the written record of all of it is gloriously true. Why? Because it's breathed out by God. Listen to how Matthew Barrett, theologian, connects the inspiration of Scripture with the truthfulness of Scripture. Listen. Scripture is not waiting around for some other authority to authenticate, confirm, or justify what it says. You follow that? Scripture's not longing for someone or something else for its validation. Scripture's authority finally rests upon the God of truth. And we are to receive his word precisely because it is his word, not ours. We don't accept it because we have in some clever way proven it to be his word. Or because we have authoritatively and decisively declared it to be his word. Rather, we accept it because of what it inherently is. Namely, the word of the living God. 
Oh, to wake up to that every morning. That'll put fire in your soul. The Bible's worthy of your trust, friend. And if you're not a Christian, please hear me very clearly on this. The Bible is worthy of your trust too. Why? Because it's inspired, it's breathed out by a trustworthy God. That the truthfulness of his character is reflected in the truthfulness of his word. And we've got to remember that, especially when we're working through doubts about the inerrancy of the word. As Al Mohler so wisely observes, the doctrine of inspiration means that our trust in scriptures is entirely dependent upon our trust in God. Remember that. Even as we wrestle with questions about what we find in the word. Okay, the word is inspired. Second, the word of God is necessary. It's inspired, it's necessary, okay? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, Matthew, all right, I'll grant you it's inspired, but, but don't all the major religions of the world claim to have some inspired book? What is it about the Bible that, that makes it unique? I mean, is, isn't it enough to believe God exists and, and live by the golden rule? Why, why, why are you Christians always making such a big hairy deal about the Bible? Bible alone, sola scriptura. Well, let me answer that question as simply as I possibly can. Because if you're asking that, I respect you for asking that. It's an important question. And here's the answer. Friend, without the word of God, we would have no hope of salvation. No hope of deliverance from sin and death. And no relationship with the God who made us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. You lose the word, you lose all of that. Why do I say that? I say that for the simple reason that we cannot find our way to God. God must reveal himself to us. We can't find our way to God. God. God must reveal himself to us. Look at the end of verse 15. What's the first thing Paul says about these, these sacred writings? They are what? Able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. No, notice Paul doesn't say that we make ourselves wise. He says we are what? We're made wise. We, we are acted upon from outside of ourselves. He's reminding Timothy that Christianity is by necessity a revealed religion. Why do I say that? Well, because God is the creator and we're the creatures. That's why. And though we bear his image, the difference between him and us is as great as the difference between the infinite and the finite. Okay, and that means you'll never discover the way to relationship with God by focusing on your ideas about God through spiritual meditation or, or mindfulness. Okay, by design, we are utterly and completely dependent on what God reveals about himself to us. In other words, the only way we will ever come to know and enjoy God for who he really is is if we learn to think God's thoughts after him. Again, Matthew Barrett makes the point well. We don't find God 
It's so true. God finds us and makes himself known to us. God is the speaker. We're the listeners. It's not enough to say the biblical authors wrote about God or even wrote for God. We must say much, much more. God himself speaks. And he speaks for himself. So how does God speak to us? How does God make us wise for salvation? Well, he starts out by speaking to us through creation. What does Romans 1.20 say? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, the glory of creation itself provides undeniable testimony, friends, that we are not here by accident. We're not. We're the product of divine design. And and the splendor of the created world tells us that there is a God who made us and he is great in power, great in glory, and we are all accountable to him. That much you can get from creation, every one of us, such that we are all without excuse. But if God's self-revelation stopped there, we would be in a heap of trouble. Because we would only have reason to run from him in fear. Why? Because we've all sinned. We've all sinned. We we have done what ought not to be done and we know it. Because he's given us a conscience. And we have failed to do what we ought to do. And we know it. And we deserve his judgment as a Result. And your conscience, even if you do not yet consider yourself a Christian, even as I'm speaking to you right now, I pray that the Holy Spirit is doing what he is so good at doing and whispering in your ear and heart, you are guilty. You are guilty. He's talking about you. Friends, praise God. He didn't stop with general revelation. His infinite mercy, he also chose to reveal himself to us through his word. It is through his word that he explains to us in words we can understand the way of salvation through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. These words don't save us. Okay? That's why we don't worship the Bible. We know know what they do do? These words, written words of scripture, bear clear and compelling witness to the one who does save us. In other words, the word written testifies, speaks, of the word incarnate. Luke 24, verse 44, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, friends, it's through the scriptures that God not only awakens us to the fact that we need a savior, but that in Jesus Christ, we find the savior that we need. He does that through his word. 
And he invites us through his word to come to him through faith in the son. That we might receive the gift of eternal life. You cannot get that from the trees. You can get that he's there. That we're accountable to him. That he's powerful and glorious. But you cannot know. You cannot discover. You can't can't search out the way of salvation in a national park. You need the word. You need God to reveal the way of salvation to you. And that way of salvation is not automatic. You have to choose to respond to the gospel. Look back at verse 15. What does Paul say? Which are guaranteed to make you wise? No. Which are able to make us wise. Friend, God will not save you against your will. He won't. But he will mercifully change your will if you're willing to humble yourself before him and cry out for him to do in desperation what only he can do, namely to change your hard heart that doesn't want to trust him because you don't want to do life God's way. You want to do life your way. He'll change that. and He'll do it through his word and he'll open through his word your eyes and the power of the spirit to see the glory of God in the face of Christ that you might trust the word incarnate and devote your life to following the word incarnate and it is through his word written that you will understand how to do that. Without the word of God, we would neither understand the gospel nor our necessary response to the gospel. The word of God is inspired. Second, it is necessary. Third, it is authoritative. It's authoritative. In other words, the scriptures lead us to Christ, but they don't stop there. Okay? They they go on, they go on to show us what it means to follow him, how to walk in the way of salvation by doing four things in the second half of verse 16. What does scripture do? Look at the second half of verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable or useful for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Okay, notice, move quickly here, that the first and the last uses are positive, what we should do. The middle two are negative, what we should not do. And here's the primary point in all of them. I'm not going to go through and explain all the various ways those words are different, okay? Here's the big idea, because I like big ideas. The scripture doesn't just exist. It makes a claim on your life. That's the big idea. It doesn't just exist. It makes a claim on your life. Why? Because God doesn't just exist, He owns us, okay? He owns us because he created us. And because he created us, he has what? Absolute authority over us. Absolute authority. And and for that reason, when God speaks through his word, he's not speaking, he's not writing, he's not inspiring into thin air. Oh, look, there goes the inspired word of God. Hey, I'll take pictures. No, okay? He's speaking to you. He's your creator. He's in charge. He's speaking to you and to me, young and old, rich and poor, black and white. His words are intensely personal and they are the primary expression of his authority in your life. And because they're all inspired and all true, they are our final authority in every area of life. 
Okay? In other words, it's the inspired nature of the word in the first half of verse 16 that guarantees the final authority of the word in the second half of the verse. Don't separate them. Because to refuse or reject submission to the authority of God's word is to refuse or reject submission to the authority of God's person. Why? I've said it a thousand times. Because when scripture speaks... God speaks. What scripture says, God says. He doesn't say it in the thin air. He says it to you. His explicit intent, verse 16, is not that we would take the words of scripture and conform them to our life, but that we would take my life, sing about that, and allow God to conform our life to the words of scripture. It's like if you go to the beach and you're playing with your kids and you're making sandcastles in in the same way that that we use a plastic mold to turn a pile of sand into a castle. God wants to use his word, friend, through the spirit to take your life and mold you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And in my experience, even in this church, a few Christians, if any, will outright deny the theoretical authority of the word of God. I've never once had somebody come up to me and say, that old book's just a bunch of, hmm. never. We're happy to come to church, many of us, and hear the word as it's read, sung, preached, and made visible through sacraments, but I think we often excel at this. We deny the authority of the word in function. We agree with it in theory, but we deny it functionally in our, in our life. So just to give some examples of this, where we, where we push back against the word's authoritative and saying, no, it's not. It, consider the realm of sexual ethics. Okay, we decide that if it feels like love, it must be okay. How about, how about our attitude toward the church? We decide that if for a season of time life gets busy or we're not so keen on the preaching or we're not singing our favorite songs, we'll just give our attention to other priorities on Sunday morning. Or how about our struggle with fear? Whether it's fear of failing health or failing finances or a broken relationship, we conclude, do we not, that if we cannot see how a particular situation will work out for good, then it most certainly cannot work out for good. I I, I could give a thousand examples, right? Of of ways we functionally deny the authority of God's word by doing what? By elevating our feelings, our experiences, and our assessments over and above the authority of God's word. We're good at that. And you know what? We do that without even trying. It's like our default setting. You know when you print a document and there's a default printer? Well, well, failing to submit ourselves under the authority of God's word is our default setting. Okay, by default, we what? We elevate my experiences, my feelings, and my assessments over and above the word. Or, or I try to negotiate with it. Like, you can rule what I do with my money but not what I do with my sexuality. 
We bargain with God. Friends, the word of God, because it is inspired by God, is authoritative. That means that unless you actively choose to confront your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions with the truth of Scripture day after day, that because of our default setting, we will inevitably end up functionally denying the authority of God in our life. So I challenge you with this question. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, be, be honest this morning. Where in your life are you tempted right now to functionally deny the authority of the word of God? By elevating your thoughts, your desires, your experiences, your assessments as more authoritative, more significant, more influential, more determinative than the word. Where are you prone to do that? I ask that question because sola scriptura isn't about getting our statement of faith right. It's about living humbly before the face of God. That's what it's about. Scripture isn't the only authority in our life, but it is the only inspired authority, the only inerrant authority, and therefore it must remain the only final authority. It's inspired, it's necessary, it's authoritative, Point number four, which is brief, then we'll conclude. Point number four, the word of God is sufficient. It's sufficient. Look at verse 17. Paul Paul ends this bracing exhortation to Timothy with an amazing promise. Scripture, all scripture, is what? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That, here's the big goal, What's it trying to get done? What's the end game, Timothy? That the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, what's he saying? Well, well he's saying, friends, that, that all, all the truth you need to know Jesus and follow Jesus as a student, as a single, as a spouse, as an employee, as a parent, as a retiree, All the truth you need to know Jesus and follow Jesus has already been given to you in his word. It's already been given to you. In other words, all that will ever be required of you, all that you need in this life to prepare yourself for the life to come is all found in here. Nowhere else. Now, there are things that we would like to know. I'm ahead of the line. (laughs) We'd like to know that God has not revealed. But, this is coming, all we need to know in order to know God and glorify God and enjoy God is all found here. Nothing missing. That's the point. What does Paul say? That the man of God, the woman of God may be competent, equipped for a few works. (laughs) For some works. For all but one work. No, for every work. Every good work. So so let me encourage those of you, those of you who are listening to me, and and you right now feel like God is calling you into a relationship or a role, maybe a role in your family, maybe into marriage, or a ministry in the church where, where you are acutely aware, I am weak, I am incompetent. Thus far, nobody else has figured this out, but I don't have a freaking clue what I'm doing. I mean, raise children? Oh my word. Be a husband? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Christ loves the church. Uh, it's not just not going to happen. 
You want me to teach who? Oh my goodness, they're so loud and noisy. How am I ever going to do this? You want me to sing in front of hundreds of people while they're all staring at me? I mean, just the list goes on. There's nothing like giving your life away for the kingdom of God that confronts you with your weakness and your insufficiency. Amen? Yeah. Starting with preaching. Having your life and all your thoughts on full display week after week. (laughs) But you know what God's promised us? That there is not one good work, friend, he will ever call you to do. That he has not already given you everything you need to do it right in here. Because this is living, remember? It's personal. It's not a a fact book, a data set, a a set of fences, you know, don't violate the boundaries. No, it's the personal word of the living God to you. And it is through this, aided by his Holy Spirit, that he nourishes and strengthens and empowers you for every good work. You've got all you need. So do I. The word of God is wholly sufficient. It's inspired, it's necessary, it's authoritative, it is sufficient. And let me close by reminding you that the last three characteristics are all a result of the first, which is why Paul gives pride of place to inspiration in verse 16, because it's the divine nature of the word that must govern our human response to the word. And so to conclude, I want you to give your attention to verse 14, I have three very brief points of application. What does Paul say? Given the nature of the word, how must it dictate our response? Verse 14, but as for you, as for you, Kingsway, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Okay, this is the so what verse. And in one verse, the Lord exhorts us to do three things, okay? Know the word, trust the word, and obey the word. Where am I getting at, all right? Well, first, we must be a people who know the word. So Paul charges Timothy, given the inspired nature of the word, to continue in what? In what you have learned, which is a charge he was to fulfill by remembering two things. The character of the messenger and the content of the message. Why? Because it's the character of the messenger of the word that confirms the integrity of the message of the word. So if you look back to 2 Timothy 1.5, what does Paul tell us about Timothy's history? Who, who is this, those from whom he learned it? Well, it's at least three people. It's the apostle Paul, and then it's two other women. His grandmother Lois, and his mother Eunice. So given Paul's call to know the word by remembering the messenger, let me take a critical moment right here to encourage and honor those of you in this room who are grandmothers and mothers. God has called you to a work of generational discipleship. And in a world where you are told from every side that the works of a greatest significance all lie outside your home. And your family, your heavenly father begs to differ. He does. 
Because ladies, the Lord wants to use the example of your godliness to equip your children and your grandchildren. To remain faithful to him. And it's the conduct of your character as a mom or as a grandma that will powerfully confirm and validate and reinforce the trustworthiness of the message. That's what Paul's saying. So ladies, thank you for doing that. Don't you dare stop doing that because there will be no gospel transfer without you. And I challenge every teenager and young adult in this church who is tempted to think, I hate the fact my mom and dad have so many rules. My non-Christian friends have none of this nonsense. You need to be grateful. And you need to pay attention to their example. Because God wants to use the example of your parents and your grandparents if they are following him, not perfectly, but faithfully, to open your eyes to see the very truthfulness of the word of God. And if you reject the influence of their example and reject the conduct of their character, then ultimately, young person, you're rejecting the word of God and you're rejecting God himself. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be a humble young man. Be a humble young woman. And watch older saints. Because it's from them that you will learn how to follow Jesus. And the apostle rightly honors and thanks God. For those who have taught Timothy. But, but it's not, please notice this. Back to verse 14. It's not Timothy's spiritual heritage that Paul invests with ultimate authority. Why not? Because persevering in the faith, young person, isn't about remembering where you came from or being true to your roots. Even, even if God's given you the privilege of, of growing up in a Christian family. Okay, Persevering in the faith is about what? Recognizing what Paul ascribes in verse 14. Ultimate authority to what? The sacred writings. The word of God. And it's that word, the very word of God himself, that we must choose to embrace. So we have to remember, how do we know the word? That's the first Application. We got to know the word. How do we do that? We remember the, the character of the messenger, but then we eventually have to not lose sight of the content and the character of the message. The sacred writings. Why? Why? So important. Because the messenger is fallible. Your parents will greatly disappoint you. You know what? God won't won't. The messenger is fallible. The message is not. The preacher of the gospel may fail you. The church built on the gospel may fail you, but the word of God will not fail you, and the God of the gospel will not fail you. So take care that your trust is not in the words of man, no matter how faithfully they are lived out in this life, may they be in this church, but in the word of God. So that if I fall, you don't fall. And if I go down, and this church, God forbid, goes down, you don't go down. Don't believe God because I look perfect. 
trust God because he's a God of truth and he has spoken the truth. And if you hold fast to this truth, it will guard you and uphold you and guide you and lead you and sustain you and get you home. Know the word, King's Way. But don't stop with knowing, trust it. Verse 14, what we have learned, that's the knowledge, we must what? Firmly believe. Firmly believe. Take, take care, friend, that you don't confuse knowledge with trust. Or learning the truth with believing the truth. The demons know plenty of truth about God, but they don't trust it. They don't believe it. It's not functionally authoritative in their life. And it is the difference between knowing the truth and believing the truth that separates a non-Christian from a Christian. Attending church and knowing all kinds of things about God does not make you a Christian. Responding to what you have learned by choosing to trust the Lord who has spoken to you through these words is what makes you a Christian. We have to know it, we have to trust it, and finally, we have to obey it. Still in verse 14, if what we have learned is the priority of knowledge, if firmly believed, if this is the necessity of trust, then the single command, continue in these things, is the call to obey. The call to obey. Because as the inspired word of God himself, scripture must function as our final authority in every area of life. So Kingsway, know the word, trust the word, and obey the word. Do that, and you'll join men like Luther and Zwingli and a host of faithful saints who have gone before us. Because sola scriptura isn't about the statement of faith. It's about who's Lord of your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm exceedingly grateful that you're speaking, God. Oh, boy. It's such an act of mercy. Creation itself would have been enough. I've shown you I'm worthy of your trust. Follow me. Submit to me. But God, you know we've sinned. You know we haven't. And so I thank you that you didn't stop speaking with creation, but you have spoken through the word written. And most importantly, it is through your word written that we come to know the word made flesh. The word we sang about this morning in that Christmas carol. And I pray as we sing this final song that you would take our hearts and gladly and wholly and thoroughly Bring them in joyful subjugation to your authority revealed in the authority of your word. Please do that. And do that tomorrow and every day this week for your glory. Amen.
stand and sing.